Please pray with me. Lord, this morning I ask that you would help us to see again what it means that we are dependent on you. Lord, in recognizing the fact that our very lives hang on your mercy, I pray that we would see the freedom that exists when we do not have to be our own gods. Soften our hearts this morning. Amen. As Brandon was reading James, Think that I'm oh look there we are there we go that's right as Brandon was reading James I found myself thinking y'all might be grateful that this is our last Sunday in James but then Michael read that passage from Mark and I thought perhaps James is safer than Jesus's words themselves sometimes the millstone around the neck of the one who causes a little one to stumble drastic measures to keep sin out of our life Our Lord can be stern at times, but it's sternness we need to hear. But we are in this last Sunday looking at James one more time. James 4.15, that verse that we heard read, is one of those verses that's inspired a phrase that Christians commonly use, if the Lord wills. It's like the phrase, in Jesus' name. It's a phrase that we use tagging on to other statements. And like any phrase that we use repeatedly, it's one of those ones that can lose its meaning if we don't actually think about it, if it just becomes something that we say. But it's a phrase that ought to be used and ought to be used sincerely. We need to retain its meaning and keep it close to us. It's a deeply important sentiment. James is telling us that we don't actually know the future. Our plans are dependent on the will of the Lord. There's humility in recognizing that. Humility is actually one of the themes that James comes back to time and time again throughout his letter. Many of the individual passages are him working out humility in a particular context. So a couple of weeks ago, we heard him working out humility in the context of how we treat one another in the congregation. In James 4.13 to 4.17, he works out humility in the context of our work and our plans for the future. In doing this, he's sort of riffing off one of Jesus' parables. You may remember the little story in Luke 12 that Jesus tells about the man who acquires great productive land. And he has all this grain and he says, what will I do with it? I'll tear down my barns. I'll build bigger barns. I'll store the goods up. And I'll say, take your rest. Enjoy the rest of your life. But the Lord says to him, you fool. Do you not know that this evening your very life will be required from you? James is calling us to humility. We have to recognize that we are ignorant about our future. We have to recognize the frailty and the fragility of our life. And we have to plan our future with humility before God. He's not teaching against planning here. He's teaching about planning with humility. In chapter 5, 1 through 6, he shifts gears a little bit, still talking about money, but he really focuses on 
humility in the acquisition and the use of money. And here, again, he's riffing off one of his master's parables. Jesus tells the story of the rich man and Lazarus, Lazarus feasting while this poor beggar, I mean, the rich man feasting while Lazarus, this poor beggar, sits outside, desperate for even a crumb that falls from the table. And in this teaching, in this teaching about humility, James says to us, don't hoard money. Acquire it with integrity and honesty. He teaches that the purpose of money is not to insulate ourselves from the world with luxury. There's humility in this. He wants us to think about money and think about the fact that it's supposed to be used for the kingdom of God, not just for ourselves. We're supposed to think about money and the fact that it's supposed to be used and acquired, not at the expense of others, but with regard for those who are poor. It's supposed to be acquired with integrity and honesty. There's humility in this because it's not all supposed to be spent on ourselves. It's supposed to be used to bless others, to advance the love of God. The sins that James describes in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 5 are actually so egregious that it's hard to imagine Christians committing them. Defrauding their workers of their wages, feasting at the expense of others. The sins are so egregious that it's hard to imagine Christians doing them. But of course, we know that there are Christians throughout the ages who've been guilty of these things. The church has been guilty of these things throughout the ages. You think of the great abuses of the medieval Roman Catholic Church acquiring money at the expense of other people desperate for forgiveness so that its leaders could live in luxury. You think of even now, prosperity gospels and million-dollar jets acquiring money from the donations of people who can't afford it, who are deceived by these leaders. Lest it's easy to blame those people because they're not us, even in the ordinary congregations, there are people who acquire money at the expense of others, who use it to insulate their lives from the sufferings of the world, who are ignorant to the cries of the poor. The church, in other words, isn't entirely free of the sins that he describes. And in James's fashion, he describes the fullest version of these sins so that we realize that the little versions that we have need to be rooted out. In other words, his point, if anywhere in your life you see yourself hoarding money, beware. If anywhere in your life you see yourself acquiring money fraudulently, beware. Root those things out. If anywhere in your life you see yourself pursuing luxury as if that were the purpose of life. Beware. Root those things out. It's a hard passage, but it's actually not the one that I'm going to focus on today. I want to turn back to the first few verses, chapter 4, 13 to 17, because I think these are the ones that are more pressing on the ordinary Christian congregation. I want to focus on these words about our work and our future. Most of us don't make ridiculous sums of money. And so it's kind of hard to understand how verses 1 through 6 of chapter 5 might apply to us. If you do, by the way, let us know and we can tell you what to do with it. Most of us have a hard time with verses about hoarding because we don't even get the opportunity to hoard. This is why I want to focus on these first few verses. Because I think these hit all of us close to home. Listen again to verses 13 to 17 of chapter 4. Come now you who say... 
Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. James is talking about the person who arrogantly boasts about his future, as if he could control everything about his life. The sin that he's describing is a particular sort of pride. And in true James fashion, he describes it in full flower. But don't, because the description is so big, the person arrogantly boasting, think that it's not something that occurs in each of our hearts. The particular pride is that pride that says, I am not dependent on God. It's a pride that says, I don't need the Lord. My life depends on me, my own plans, my own efforts. It's the person who thinks that he can control his life, set its terms, its agenda, its goals. As I read this passage this week, I was actually reminded of the poem Invictus by the British poet William Ernest Henley. That name probably means nothing to you, but my guess is every single one of you knows the very last line of his poem. He says, It matters not how straight the gate how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Like I said, you likely don't know this 19th century poet, but you've heard that last line. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. This is the sort of pride that James is describing. And that sentiment that William Ernest Henley espoused, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul, is actually somewhat inspiring to us. We make movies about this sort of thing. The person who takes life into their own hands and who says, I will decide my future. In fact, people who are subtle in their observations have noticed that this is sort of the chief public virtue of America. You get to decide who you want to be. You are the master of your fate. You are the captain of your soul. This is what it means to be strong, we think. But very simply, James calls it pride. James calls it pride. You see, we were created as dependent beings. Our design, the purpose of our lives, our very life and breath itself, the human spirit, comes from God. We did not create it and we did not design it. It's a lie that we can choose who we want to be because God has actually designed our purpose, our life. The evidence that he puts for this in creation is everywhere that we look. We can't food, force food to grow so that we can live. We are dependent on his activity. We're dependent on the oxygen in the air, something that we cannot make happen. We're dependent on the availability of water. We even can't work forever. At some point, we are dependent on sleep. We are dependent on the functions of our immune system. I could go on and on. My point is very simply that we are dependent on God. This is the way that we are made. The evidence for this is embedded throughout creation. 
As James says, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. How do you think that you can make your life whatever you want it to be? You can't predict tomorrow, let alone next year. The pride of independence from God that seeks to make our life what we want is simply foolishly ignorant in James's perspective. You're a fool because you don't know the future. How can you dictate what you would be? As James says, you are a mist that appears for a moment and then vanishes at dawn. The pride that asserts our own strength and ability to control life, again, is foolishly ignorant. We are like vapor. We are intransient, ephemeral, and pass away so quickly. The biblical truth is that we are dependent beings. We are absolutely at the mercy of God for our future. He designed our life for a particular purpose. He designed our life for a purpose that we cannot escape no matter how hard we try. He designed our lives to reflect the image of God to the rest of creation. He designed our lives so that we might bring order out of the chaos of the world. And he designed our lives so that we would offer the love of God to whoever we come into contact with. To say, I can choose my purpose is as foolish as saying, I chose to make myself come into being. We are absolutely dependent on the mercy in the design of God. To say, I don't need God, I can control tomorrow, is arrogant and ignorant in James's words. James is not saying that we don't get to decide how to live the life that God has given us. The fact that he actually calls us to plan in humility reveals that we actually get a huge amount of say in what goes on. We get to plan and interact with the way that God has designed us for what he's designed us. Jesus himself praised wise planning. God's not deterministic fate. He actually allows genuine freedom. And this is going to be one of my major points today. He allows genuine freedom in this life that he's given to us, this incredible freedom that's given by him in the details of our lives. But James's point is that we are still dependent on him, and the right use of our lives recognizes this dependence. We are dependent on the Lord, and the right use of our lives recognizes that dependence. In humility, we are actually called to realize that God sets the ultimate purpose. We don't. In humility, we are called to realize that God sets the ultimate purpose for our lives, even though we have freedom in how we accomplish it. In humility, we are called to realize that we can't control the future, even though we're supposed to be wise and planning for it. In humility, we're called to realize that our lives themselves are God's mercy, not something that we claim as our own. Y'all at this point say, I know all this. I know all this. And likely you do. But it's a message that we need to hear from time to time. It's a message that we need to hear from time to time because the dominant message that the world is giving us is that you get to set the purpose for your life. That's the dominant note in our culture that you set the purpose for your life. You get to decide the meaning of your life. You get to decide the value of your life. Our world says you can dictate your agenda for tomorrow, for next year, and no one has the right to tell you otherwise. Our world says that your life is your own. It's to be lived for you on your own terms, the way you want to live. 
The world continually tells us that we are independent, that you can do what you want. This is not just the mantra of America, by the way, though. It goes all the way back to the garden. We could say that the very first sin was humanity saying to God, we will be master over our own life. You have no right to tell us what to do. In other words, it's not just an American sin. The fall itself was an attempt to be independent, to set the terms for our own life. In other words, we need to hear this because the weight of the world's message is going in the opposite direction. But we need to hear this because even as Christians who believe with our minds that we are dependent, even as Christians who acknowledge with our lips that we are dependent, even we Christians act as if everything depended on us. A few weeks ago I said that James is one of those books that feels harsh, but there is a beautiful river running underneath its surface. And this is one of those points of beautiful water. Even we Christians who acknowledge with our minds that we are dependent on the Lord and say with our lips that we are dependent on the Lord, even we so frequently act as if everything depended on our actions. God very simply says to you, you are dependent on me. Now, I've heard me quote these verses before because they're some of my favorite verses, but the way he frames it in different places is so beautiful. Isaiah 30, verse 16. And repentance and rest is your salvation. And quietness and trust is your strength. In other words, rest on God. Your strength is in him, not in you. Or you think about 2 Corinthians 12. God saying to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. Power is perfected in weakness. In other words, again, it's not your strength that matters. Or 2 Corinthians 4, one that many of y'all know, where Paul says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing greatness comes from God and not from us. Scattered throughout the Bible, running through it, these beautiful verses that say to us, God is your strength, not you. God is your treasure, not you. God is your salvation, not you. And yet how oftentimes are we guilty of living as if our salvation lies in our own planning? You know, we just have to get it just right and everything would work out, right? Guilty of thinking that our salvation lies in our own planning. Guilty of thinking that our treasure lies in our goals and our dreams. If I only get that thing that I long for, all will be well within our treasure and our goals and dreams, rather than that treasure given to us a jar of clay hidden within, given from one that we are dependent on. How often times do we think that our strength is in our effort? 30 more minutes and I can finish this. I will be good enough. Our strength lies in our effort. In other words, even we who would say, yes, I know my life is dependent on God. Even we who say, yes, I know that everything I have comes from him. If you examine our daily lives, what you will discover is people who are living as if everything rested upon their own efforts. Everything depended upon them. Our lives reveal how little we are truly dependent on him. Our frantic effort, the frustration when our plans get messed up, the fact that we feel like failures when we don't succeed. This is the one that hits really close to home for me. 
The fact that I feel like a failure when I don't succeed on my terms reveals the very fact that I think that it's all up to me, that it all rests on my shoulders. This all points to the fact that we feel like our lives and our very value itself rest on our shoulders and not on God's. James is not calling us to inactivity. He's not calling us to give up. God will do it for you. Just give up. Flop down. He's not calling us to inactivity any more than he's calling us to giving up planning. Instead, he's calling us to humility in these things. He's calling us to a freedom that comes when we realize our dependency. This is the beautiful thing. The freedom that comes in realizing our dependency. A little child helping a parent with chores around the house does not get stressed. The little child is at absolute freedom to contribute with all of their might and make all the mistakes in the world because guess what? The outcome depends upon the parent. There is freedom in recognizing our dependency. The child can work without anxiety because the parent is ultimately responsible. My point, y'all, in recognizing our dependence, we actually get set free from the worry about whether or not we will be successful. Because in truly coming to terms with our dependence, we realize that it is not on your shoulders. It's not on mine. Like I said, this one hits close to home. I'm not particularly good at this one. I put way too much pressure on my own self to get these things done. There's a deep sense within me of it depends on me. What freedom would there be in finally coming to terms with the fact that actually, no, it doesn't at all. It does not depend on you, even in the slightest of it. Your life itself depends on God. There's freedom and strength in recognizing that we aren't in charge. This grates against us because we want to be in charge, but think of the burden of being the one in control. Think of the freedom of actually coming to terms with the fact, no, 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 you are not. The Lord himself holds you. God has not asked you to take his place. It's a beautiful thought, is it not? God has not asked you to take his place. You don't need to be everything. You don't need to do everything. He's not asked you to control the future. You can't any more than I can. We don't even know it. How could we control it? He's not asked you to control the future. The message is you can't predict tomorrow. Your life is a mist that depends on the mercy of God. You don't choose its terms. You don't set its limits. You don't choose its purpose. You don't choose what it's designed to be. That message threatens our pride. Yes, I do. I set the terms. I am an independent person. I want to be who I want to be. The message cuts through our pride and it threatens our pride. But that very same message is an absolutely enormous relief for all those who've been living with the burden of having to be their own God. That message is a relief for those who have been living as if they have to be God in their own families to make it work. That message is a relief for those who think that they have to be God within their workplace for it to succeed. 
And that message is a relief for those who believe that they have to be God in their own habits and disciplines in order to be good enough, valuable enough, strong enough. At a deep level, so much of our planning and effort and striving, this effort to protect ourselves, this effort to prove that we are valuable, is chasing after the wind. Do we ever succeed? Do we ever succeed? It's chasing after the wind. What would happen if we actually came to terms with our Lord Jesus' words when he said, I don't miss a sparrow that falls, and you're a lot more important to me than sparrows? What would happen if we came to terms with the fact that he says, truly, my strength is perfected in your weakness? What would happen if we came to terms with, he said, I put my treasure in jars of clay, not in beautiful treasure chests. What would happen if we came to terms with the fact that our salvation and our strength truly are in resting in him? In other words, again, these are not calls to inactivity. They're calls to the freedom with recognizing that we act like a little child in his presence with great freedom because the burden is on him, not on us. James's words are strong and they cut our pride down. But there's beauty and simplicity in realizing that we actually exist in God's mercy. We exist in his kindness. So my call to you all this morning is that if you think that your strength and your salvation come by your striving and your effort, if you think that your value comes from getting life perfect and working it out, if you think that you are who you are because you've gotten everything under control, let go of that burden. Let go of that burden. Come to him as children and say, Lord, I am dependent on you. Offer the little gifts of your labor. Say, this is the best I've got. This is what I've got. Please do something beautiful with it. And the Lord says he will not miss a moment. He cares for you more than he cares for the sparrows. Amen.